Welcome back to the Parallel Lines Project, the podcast where I separate fact from fiction and uh, hopefully tell you an interesting story. I'm your host, Mark Muldowen. On this week's podcast, episode four, History Eraser. Revisionism, denial, ignorance, call it what you want, but most people just don't know that much about history and it can be a problem. I'll take a look at the ever-growing trend of making shit up about our past in order to make stupid points about the present from Stephen Harper to Donald Trump. This one will get a little political, uh, so put on your thinking caps and don't email me about my biases. Then, the recipe. This will actually be part one of a two-part recipe. Kind of going to allude to what I'm doing next week, but um, just make sure to follow it pretty closely here. Um, I'm going to be a bit more simple today and teach you how to roast a damn good chicken. Hold on to your carcasses too, because next week we are going over stocks and soups and doing a particular soup that I love that's quite easy to make. I think you can do it at home. So make sure you keep everything uh, from this episode. But first. Thanks for the feedback on the last show. I'm happy to see that there are no hiccups this time. It looks as though the podcasting gods have finally smiled upon me. I'm happy that I have yet to see any complaints regarding the content. Uh, A lot of people are deep into the MLM world and uh, it hurts sometimes to hear the truth about their projects. Just the amount of time that people invest into these things is absolutely staggering. And the amount of hope they pin on it is is just incredible too. People really dig the idea of fast, easy money and predators like New Skin and Herbalife take advantage of this. I want to make it clear that you aren't necessarily stupid for falling for these scams. MLN organizations are huge behemoths that employ very intelligent people uh, to pimp their products. I know very intelligent people that have fallen for these schemes. Lapses in judgment are pretty common, especially if you're in a tough place like being unemployed. I want to point out a few other MLM scams out there that you might want to be aware of. Uh, Here, I'm just going to list them off for you. Uh, ACN, uh, Amway Global or Quickstar, BIM or Business in Motion. I'm going to butcher this one. Fusion, E-F-U-S-J-O-N. Fortune High Tech Marketing, iJango, Lyonese Red Flags, Manatech, Preplayed Legal, USANA Health Services, Vaisalis, and YTB or Your Travel Biz are all really blatant MLM scans. Uh, They're things that are being targeted by regulatory organizations as well. So keep your eye out in the news for some of these. Uh, Some of them are quite old, like Amway. So I'm not expecting too much out of that, but uh, it'd be nice to see that sort of thing uh, start to get taken care of. Please avoid these at all costs. Now on to a lighter note before we dive headfirst in today's topic. I'm getting kind of sick of all these Onion fake news ripoff sites that seem to be popping up everywhere. While The Onion has impeccable writing and a really sharp wit, most of these sites seem to be populated by unfunny, meme-regurgitating college students who wouldn't know funny if Mel Brooks dick-slapped them in the face. 
This week I read a really terrible article originating from one of these so-called satirical sites entitled Man Killed 27 People After Being Transplanted Heart of Serial Killer. Besides the headline gore and the obvious lack of originality whatsoever, the article made its rounds around social media. A quick fact check would find the original article was from the World Daily News, which has published many hilarious pieces of satire, like George Lucas admits C-3PO based off of Gay Friend, and Yoko Ono had an affair with Hillary Clinton in the 1970s. Careful with that edge there. My sides. I'm still not sure why these types of articles get so much traction on social media. Not only are they so unbelievable, but they don't even read like proper news articles. They're not even funny either. I, I just... It boggles my mind. Well, I guess shock value is still alive and well. Mark Twain once wrote something along the lines of, History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. The more I read about history, the more I'm not so sure how true that is, despite the fact that I fucking love Mark Twain. You see, we are really under the impression that history is some grand narrative that culminates in today. We think we can see our past and learn about our future using it. It's true that history gives us a lot of insight into our present day, but it's not as simple as reading a narrative and fitting it into our own views. People like to find patterns where there is none. So I'll begin today's topic by discussing a semi-recent news article. Donald Trump, aka the Donald, aka Trump, aka Donald the Fascist Trump, has recently opened up his new Trump International Golf Club in Sterling, Virginia with a bit of fanfare since he'll be hoping to host the PGA in 2017. The opening had all the theatrics you would expect from a crazy man with the world's most impossible comb-over. On the course, there's a plaque that reads, Many great American soldiers, both North and South, died at this spot. The inscription also reads, The casualties were so great that the water here would turn red and thus became known as the River of Blood. Sounds super historic, crazy Mr. Trump. Well, something smelt fishy to the local historians who began to question the River of Blood plaque, probably because the whole thing was made up in a whole cloth. There was no battle in Sterling or at the site of this river. When pressed, Trump shot back. And I'm not going to do an impression here because I fucking suck at impressions. How would they know that? And when told that local historians had called his plaque a fiction, he said, quote, were they there? Well, it's not like the American Civil War was recent and well-documented in historical terms. Oh, wait. It was. The whole thing reeks of anti-intellectualism and a profound lack of understanding of history in general. Trump isn't even the only one who does this. Earlier this year, during the debates regarding the Confederate flag in the U.S., many people were coming out of the woodworks to whitewash history in order to prove their regional symbol had nothing to do with the evils of slavery. Hell, in 2012, this even happened in Canada. The Harper government made a big deal about the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812. From watching the TV ads commissioned by the Conservative Party of Canada, 
You would have the impression that the war was a solidifying moment in the Canadian national identity. Something of something akin to the US Civil War or the US Revolutionary War. Something that just galvanized the country. In reality, the War of 1812 was a small step in a really long process that led to Canadian independence. Yes, if the Americans successfully annexed the British colonies that would become Canada, our country wouldn't exist. But that's really the extent of how much the war had as an impact on our identity. Most of the people who lived in Canada at the time didn't see themselves as Canadians. They saw themselves as British subjects or uh, in French Canada as Acadians or Quebecois. Um, and among the First Nations saw themselves as their particular nation, whether it be uh, the Shawnee or or um, the Iroquois or, or any of those nations. But first of all, the, the majority of soldiers fighting for Canada and I'm, I'm using the term Canada here very loosely because while there were uh, upper and lower Canada, it really wasn't, like I said, an identity yet. It wasn't a, a nation yet. It was a far-flung colony. But many of those soldiers that were fighting for Canada were actually British expeditionary force uh, soldiers and were born and raised in the UK. Basically, the BEF was the British's uh, mobile attack unit. They were able to be dispatched to their colonies or, or to the continent or to far off places in order to fight on behalf of the empire. They also didn't really settle here in Canada. Uh, after the war was over, most of them went back to Europe. You know, there was something uh, of a war going on in Europe at the time that kind of overshadowed the War of 1812. You might have heard of it. It was called the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, it was the bloodiest period of human history up until the First World War, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. Really what they were doing was they were fighting to protect a far-flung but strategically important colony in their globe-spanning empire. Uh, the war itself, if you don't really know anything about it, was really more about uh, press gangs and, and the UK's insistence on taking uh, American ships and pressing their crews into uh, service in, in the British Navy. That was actually their main recruiting method at the time, was basically kidnapping people and forcing them to, to work for the Navy. It was kind of important, too, because Britain had a massive Navy. Even at this point, their Navy just dwarfed anyone else's in the world. And that sort of military power requires a huge amount of manpower behind it in order to keep it running efficiently. The Americans were pissed off about this, obviously, and also saw this as a chance to maybe take the entire North American continent, uh, although that was really not the main goal. The main goal was to stop this incursion of British ships into uh, the American merchant marine and uh, into uh, American ships in general. Now, before I get into a little bit more of the revisionism that was up there, I just want to state that I'm not saying the War of 1812 wasn't important to Canadian history. It really was kind of the first step towards our independence. Uh, the war kind of showed that the North American colonies were pretty expensive to maintain and that uh, having a massive rival power just to the south of this kind of tiny unpopulated area uh, was pretty uh, dangerous to British interests in the area. And uh, really, they would need a, a much more responsive way of, of dealing with this and um, ultimately, Canadian independence became that reason. But really, 
there was more of a push for this after the American Civil War and and the uh, the buildup of troops from the Civil War uh, that really scared the British government in, into giving uh, the Canadians a little bit more power on their own. And really, our our independence wasn't born in a single moment, much like the U.S. is. It it was very gradual and not complete until like halfway through the 20th century uh, after World War II. Um, we didn't even really control our own uh, foreign relations in, until that point, which I really don't think you could call us a, a fully-fledged country if if our motherland in the UK was really dealing with most of our international affairs. So anyways, the, the government also pressed hard uh, the involvement of Tecumseh and his confederacy as part of our history, which always doesn't really sit well with me. Uh, in reality, Tecumseh was a brilliant military commander um, and a brilliant person in general. And he saw the writing on the wall uh, for all the native people of North America and really was deciding to stage one last ditch effort to save his people. Uh, at this point, uh, the, the huge population that used to live in North America before European contact had been ravaged by disease and war and uh, mass migration and starvation uh, and it was really a, a shadow of its former self. And there was a real sense that between the British and the French and the Spanish and the Americans, uh, that their time was coming to an end. And, and and they were right about this. Um, their populations were just too small in order to defend themselves. And uh, let's get the image out of our mind of these kind of naked people riding horses with stone weapons, uh, stone axes and, and wooden bows and arrows shooting at each other. If you look at some contemporary paintings of Tecumseh, you can see him. He, he's wearing like almost like a British military officer's uniform. Um, they weren't stupid. They're human beings. Um, they rolled with the times. Yeah, they didn't have guns or or a lot of metalworking or anything like that when the Europeans first came, uh, but they picked up on this quite quickly. Uh, one thing to note is is that horses are not native to North America. They actually died out before uh, human civilization was built there. So the image in your mind of of the First Nations warrior riding on horseback. Uh, that was them adapting to new technology that was brought over. And if you look online and, and uh, look at some of the other native tribes throughout uh, Canada and the U.S., you also notice that they adapted to other things, too. Uh, another example just off the top of my head, the, the Haida uh, were really into intricately carving their guns uh, that they would buy from other tribes around that were trading with uh, the Europeans. They also mounted cannons on the side of their canoes, which uh, I haven't actually seen a picture of it. I've only read about it, um, but that sounds actually really cool. Uh, but anyways, th this was the last ditch effort to try and save the the native peoples of, of North America. And uh, while Tecumseh was a Shawnee uh, nation native, uh, he created this confederacy that encompassed multiple bands that were just coming together to try and resist this massive American expansion. And uh, he joined the British as an ally in the War of 1812 under the promise that he would get land for his people. The British had an idea of creating a buffer state uh, between their colonies in North America and the U.S. in order to prevent uh, any sort of American invasion. Uh, but Tecumseh was killed in battle, uh, if you didn't know that. Um, 
and, and really when he died the confederacy died with him and uh, along with that the british turned their back on their allies in order to cut a more favorable deal with the americans uh, the victory quote unquote more war of 1812 wasn't as decisive as uh, a lot of those ads would have you believe it was really more of a a reshuffling of the status quo than any sort of successful repulsion. Um, a lot of people will say the Americans were trying to take over Canada, but as I mentioned earlier, that that was kind of a nice to have as their goal. It wasn't their main goal. And uh, really, they did stop the British from pressing their people into their Navy, um, which kind of was their main goal. So really, in, in, in reality, the war was kind of a draw. Uh, it was also really small-scale fighting, uh, especially compared to what was going on in Europe at the time in uh, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Obviously, those were an order of magnitude larger than these kind of backwaters uh, exchanging pot shots at each other. I mean, this whole thing is really more of a lesson on how poorly we treated the First Nations than a triumphant tale of cross-racial harmony. Ultimately, this push to rewrite Canadian history to mimic our neighbors' born and blood historiography failed. And we didn't really drink the Kool-Aid. Most people were turned off by the celebration. I know talking with people, um, you know, we don't really see Canada as a, a nation that was born in blood. You know, we're not really violent people. We're we're peacekeepers. That's kind of what our, our role evolved into. Uh, war was an important part of our history, and, and World War One and World War II were both seminal moments in uh, our country's foundation. But they weren't the be-all, end-all, and it's not really what we see ourselves as. I mean, our, our national animals, the, the beaver, it's uh, kind of a small, industrious rodent. Not uh, not like an eagle or a lion or something like that. You know, th these two examples that I used here are, are more harmless examples of revisionism. When you start down this rabbit hole, you start to understand where this kind of thought can lead. Ideas like Holocaust denial and Armenian genocide denial are the most extreme of this spectrum. People like to take something like history and shape it to fit their narrative. Because history, unlike the hard sciences, is sometimes up to interpretation, and people tend to run hog wild with it. In reality, historical consensus is reached through thorough, unbiased research and debate among people who literally dedicate their lives to understanding the ebbs and flows of humanity. And understanding also shifts with new evidence and uh, with debate on old evidence as well. It's something that a bad comb over in an MBA really can't understand. Well, that was thoroughly depressing. Now it's time to ease the pain with delicious chicken. So it's the first night of Hanukkah today, and uh, I feel like celebrating yet another Jewish holiday that celebrates our ancestors barely escaping total destruction with a delicious chicken recipe. Yeah, it's not traditional uh, Jewish dish, but it's necessary start for next week's dish, which 
is a traditional Jewish dish. You probably put two and two together at this point now, uh, but I'm still not going to say what it is yet. Uh, like I said earlier, you're going to have to keep the carcass of the chicken. Make sure to freeze it if you're waiting more than a few days to use it. Say if you're making the dish tonight or, or tomorrow night um, and you want to wait till next week, uh, please freeze it. it. It'll get gross and you'll make yourself sick otherwise. Roast chicken is such an easy but important thing to master. You can do so much with it after you carve the meat off of it. So to start off, you'll need the following. One whole three to four pound chicken. It can be a fryer or a roaster. Roasters are larger than fryers. That's really the only difference. Don't let the name fool you. Uh, one lemon. Two tablespoons of olive oil. Three sprigs of fresh sage. I use purple sage from my garden, but you can use green sage as well. It's just gonna be slightly different. Kosher salt, and it's important use kosher salt and black pepper first obviously preheat the oven to 450 rinse the chicken inside and out and pat dry with a paper towel make sure it's really really dry what you're doing is preventing any sort of steam from forming around the chicken this allows the skin to crisp up and lock in the moisture in the meat next sprinkle the kosher salt and black pepper over the chicken and inside the cavity don't overdo it with the pepper, but you can go pretty hog wild with the kosher salt. I can't stress enough how important it is to use kosher salt. I know I just said that, but I really want to stress this. Basically, this salt is ground into larger kernels, which will suck up any moisture in the skin. It was designed for butchers to, to soak up blood from cuts of meat. So sprinkle it with kosher salt and let it rest for a minute and let the salt work its magic. Next, slice the lemon in half and shove both halves inside the chicken. Then add two sprigs of sage, stems and all, into that cavity. Now, cross the legs of the chicken and tie tightly with kitchen twine, not any sort of string that might burn in the oven. Then bend the wings under the back of the chicken. This is called trussing the bird, and it's an important thing to learn how to do if you want to learn to cook chicken. It basically allows you to cook chicken evenly. It kind of creates one giant mass of chicken rather than dangly bits all over the place. Next, pick the leaves off the last sage sprig and coarsely chop them. Brush the chicken with olive oil, being very careful to keep as much salt on the chicken as possible. You want to see a light dusting all over the chicken on the skin. Then sprinkle the sage over the chicken breast. Place the chicken on the roasting rack, then in a pan, then place in the oven. You can also just rest uh, it in a cast iron pan lined with vegetables like carrots, potatoes, you know, root vegetables that are cut into bite-sized pieces. Now slap that baby into the oven and roast it for about 50 to 60 minutes or until the internal temperature of the thigh is at least 165 degrees Fahrenheit. You also want to check the breast as well. If the thigh is at 165, the breast should be around 180. Uh, but basically, chicken is safe to eat if it reaches 165. So if somehow some magic happens and the breast is at 165 and the thigh is at 165, you should be okay. You can also pierce the skin and see if the juices run clear. Uh, if that is the case, then it is cooked. Let it sit for 15 minutes, then carve, then serve. 
Make sure to remove the crap stuffed inside the chicken carcass after carving it up and before freezing or refrigerating it. Keep the leftover meat as well. You can freeze that too. Um, for the super making next week, dark meat's the best, but you can use either or it really doesn't matter. Now keep it for next time and uh, I'll tell you how to turn that carcass into another full meal. Well, that's it for episode four of the Parallel Lines Project. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like it, please leave a comment uh, or rate it in iTunes, preferably both. Uh, Also, tell your friends, share it around. Uh, I'd love for more people to start hearing this thing. Uh, You can also see a transcript of the show and any sort of show notes at markmuldowan.com forward slash podcast. All the music on this podcast is used under the Creative Commons license and was found at the Free Music Archive. Our theme song is Against the Wall by Boxcat Games. Thanks again, Boxcat Games. Really appreciate it. And uh, any other music included in this podcast is credited in to their respective artists in the show notes. Have a great weekend, everyone. Keep it weird. And uh, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs>